Welcome back to the Space Salvi Institute podcast. I'm Andrew Pettiprin, joined as always by Bobby Mixa, coming to us as always from Poland. Bobby, how are you? I'm good, Andrew. How's Dallas? It's good. Very balmy. We're going to have a warm Christmas. We are recording this just before Christmas and uh, happy about that. So uh, yeah, but looking forward to our conversation today, Bobby, because we have a guest our guest is Rodney Hauser, who is a professor at DeSales University in Pennsylvania, an expert on Hans Urs von Balthasar, a doctorate from, I had it here in front of me, Marquette University, and uh, and kind of a friend of friends. So we're, we're excited today for Rodney to be our, our friend too, since uh, we have so many mutuals in common. We're going to talk a little bit today about leisure, which is something that, um, Bobby, you and I are both very interested in. Uh, we're interested in working hard as well, but working hard for for the sake of leisure, as it were. So uh, Rodney Hauser, welcome to the Space Alpha Institute podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. I really am looking forward to this. Yeah, well, let's get started. Um, you... Uh, have just recently taught a class on leisure. And now we often talk to people about recent books or articles or something like that. And maybe you've written about some of these things too, but I think it's exciting to talk about a class, to talk about what people are doing out there in academia, out in the academy, and teaching about leisure sounds like a really wonderful thing to do. So tell us about that. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I this, this is my 25th year at DeSales, and uh, I've taught just about every course under the sun in the, in the theology department. But we had this course on the books called Work and... Oh, no, it was called The Workaday World. That was the name of the course originally. And it was taught in the adult studies program by an old colleague of mine. He kind of invented the course for the adult studies program where they talked about themes of work and leisure. And they thought it would be more relevant to the students in the adult studies program because they're in the work, they're in the work world, right? Whereas the undergrads, unfortunately, most of them are in the work world already while they're there doing their studies, but um, not very good at leisure. But uh, but at any rate, uh, when I saw it there, I thought, you know what, I'm, I'd like to revive this course and do it in the day program because the concepts or the ideas of, or the realities of work and leisure are are not just important to people that happen to have full-time jobs or, or whatever obviously it's, it's it's something we have to uh, think about from very very early on i think and so i thought i want to revive this course and bring it into the day program and then i had to spend the summer figuring out what am i going to possibly read uh in this course because there aren't really many books out there on the topic of leisure at least not from the perspective that I wanted to approach the topic. You know, usually by leisure, you know, people mean, you know, doing nothing, you know, enjoy yourself, do nothing, you know, that kind of thing. So, so I, I knew about Peeper's book, of course, which I had read and, and is, it is, 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 is justly uh, famous. But then I knew I was going to have to cobble a couple other things in there to fill out the course a little bit. And I decided to go with um, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. Um, which doesn't seem like it's about leisure, but it really is. And uh, and then the new book by Matthew Crawford uh, called "The World Outside Your Head," um, and then I think it's called "How to Be a, How to Become an Individual in a World of Distraction," right? And uh, and I had no idea how that was going to work. Uh, the Peeper book and the Crawford books are quite demanding for ordinary undergraduates, which is what I teach. 
the paper, the, the postman book is much more accessible and, uh, and all that. And, and so I was really worried to, to be honest, I was nervous going into the class thinking like, how is this going to go over? Um, so I'll, I'll put that out there then and see if you guys have any other questions. Uh, you know, that's just kind of how the course came about. Well, how did it go over? I mean, how did the students respond? Yeah. So, you know, the, the one worry is you're reading a book by postman being cranky about people watching too much television. And it's now 2023, and our my <laughs> students don't watch tell they, like they don't watch television. You know, they don't have. They, they just television. watch this. Yeah. They walk around with a full time you know television, right? So, and I thought they're really going to be offended because he's already going after people in 1985 or whatever, and and they're a hundred times worse. You know, at least uh, you know by all accounts, how are they going to react to the book and? Um, it, I was astounded that they were kind of blown away because he was he has so much evidence in the in the book that things are are going south in terms of our ability to follow sustained arguments um, because we've moved from a typographical age to a showbiz age. He calls it an age of television. And their initial reaction was, I think they were a little offended. They felt like they were being preached at a little bit or something like that. But as he just keeps piling the evidence on, like they love the story about the Lincoln-Douglas debate that lasted for six hours at the World's Fair. And at the end of the debate, Lincoln could not see the back of the crowd. That's how many people were still hanging on six hours in. And so I asked them, like, how does that compare to our like debates that are going on right now, you know, the Republicans and the, and the Democrats, you know, and they just start laughing, you know, just like these little, you know, five minute shouting bats, you know, you know, about, you know, accusing each other. Of so eventually their verdict on that book was that it's actually more relevant now than it was when he wrote it because it's become more pervasive. You couldn't take a television with you in the day. So there was not much danger that you're going to be watching television all day long. You know, maybe six hours or or something a day, which would be a lot uh, or whatever, but nothing like the time, the amount of screen time that they do. So that was a really interesting way of entering into the course. I kind of started with, with that book. It's interesting, Ronnie, how how prophetic some of those um, critiques of media still are that you encounter in the 70s or 80s. Uh, I sometimes think about this scene from the Woody Allen movie, Hannah and Her Sisters, where Max von Sydow's character is this cranky artist who um, who's, who lives with this woman uh, who is having an affair with her sister's husband. There's a whole thing. But anyway, she comes home and he he confesses that for the first time in years, he's just decided to flip the channels, you know, and and he's just horrified by all the things that the professional wrestling and deodorant salesmen and, and TV preachers and all this sort of thing. Right now, again, like it seems kind of funny, like if you just flip that on and watch it now, it might just seem like, oh, what a kind of silly old fashioned kind of crankiness. Right. But when you really when you really develop the thought more, you realize it's so much worse than that. I mean, like to think that the future would just be, we would sit in front of a TV. Well, that's pretty horrifying, but now yeah. it's interactive, right? I mean, now we're, you know, now it's like all, it's it's sort of sickeningly ter um, uh, um, kind of um, tailored to the individual. And it's like, there's just, it's so much easier actually to just lose yourself uh, and, and find yourself not at leisure, and not at work, and just kind of lost in the world. Would you agree? Absolutely, right. So one of the students in her final paper said, you know, about the, she was writing about the Postman book, and she said, you know, at least in the day, 
you might sit around with your family watching bad television shows or whatever, but at least you're all focused on on something outside of yourselves, right? That, and, and I remember when I was a kid, when we first got a television, I think I must have been about eight years old, and we got this massive thing that, you know, that would you turn it off and it would go down to a little dot in the middle. And I think we had, we could get three channels. So there wasn't much to choose from. And it had to be something that was uh, uh, satisfying to two adults and a boy and two girls. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> that's that's and and so we would have to compromise and watch something that really none of us really wanted to watch, but we all agreed to watch because it was somewhere in the middle of all of our interests. You know, I wanted them to watch Gilligan's Island, but they they nobody was into that but me. So I, so um so we would you know watch sometimes these cop shows, and you know obviously we were just kind of like sort of brain dead watching TV a little bit, but there was the fact that we were doing it together. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes we would even talk about the shows afterwards and stuff like that. So, but now, you know, you go, like I was at Thanksgiving at my nephew's house and I was just kind of sitting there one evening when we were all in the living room and I'm looking around and every single person in the room is is on their phone. And uh, and they're all in their own little world, yeah. you know, even though there's football on, which I was watching. Um, <laughs> no, everybody's like glancing at it every once in a while, but wasn't really interested in the game. And that's a whole nother level of, you know, solipsism being cut off from reality. And I think my students really, really saw that. It's kind of like the Postman book awoke them to the dangers. And then they realized like, oh, my gosh, the dangers are even more pronounced now. I, I want to come back to the postman book, but when you said that you were actually the your experience of watching television with your siblings and fighting over you know the station, what you're going to watch, um, going to now the Matthew Crawford book, The World Outside Your Head. There's this great story about when he used to go to the uh, was it the YMCA when he was a teen trying to get all big at the gym. And there are a bunch of black guys who controlled the the music in with the, the cassettes and all that. And and nobody could you had a fight for the right to the music. Um, and but everybody knew, like, if somebody put some tune on and it's like walking on sunshine or something, everybody's going to boo and try and then somebody has somebody's going to be blamed for putting that on. But at least. You, you at least it was like a um, um, a community, and yeah. you could you had some control over the music, and then you contrast that with going to the gym at the, I think it was like the University of Virginia gym, in which yeah. there's this horrible horrible music being played, like some emo crap, um, oh. and you know <laughs> anyways like nobody possibly could like this music. Right, Sorry, right. emo fans. Um, but <laughs> he goes up to the guy and he says to him, can you at least change the channel or change the music? I'll take anything, even your yeah. music. It's surely better than this. And the guy says, well, I don't want to impose my choice upon anyone. Remember that? And like also that it's like some company. And so then he gets into the sense that, okay, well, because he gives some kind of like so-called like, you know, Maybe some professor would like that that uh, declaration. I would not like to impose my choice on anyone. Um, but at the same time, you have corporations just imposing this 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 yeah. world yeah. on us in the commons, yeah. and that's really illuminating. And I was wondering, um, going with that experience you had and with the Crawford scene, did how did did that spark a lot of conversation? 
Yes. I mean, it's, it's interesting. We, we, we did the Crawford book last. So we only got into the very first part of the second half, which I was really disappointed because the second half is so good because it's about, it's precisely about yard minds and wills develop better when they develop with other people and in cooperation and, and uh, interaction with other people. And it's a brilliant, brilliant part of the book, but unfortunately we only got two chapters into that. So we didn't get to that part, Okay, but but I do want to say this about the about the Crawford book. Um, I, I think a lot of them really. I mean, you got. I mean, Gen Z, right? This is this is what we're talking about, and there are a lot of interesting things that I my generation needs to know about these people because I have to teach them, right? So I I try to like read Jonathan Hay, you know, you know, try to you know hear what people like. What what is it about these guys? And there's just a few things that come to mind. Um, they're, they're, they were all raised after no child left behind, right? So they're very, very, very nervous about assessment and measuring everything they do. You know, they, they can't do anything without a rubric and a grade assigned to it, right? So that's, that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, they grew up in, in very, very safety conscious, uh, uh, environments, right? So their parents were very, very afraid, they were either going to get hurt or abducted or, or both. I told my students, I think my mom wanted me to get abducted. She'd be like, I don't want to see you till dinner time. <laughs> I'd come back and she'd be like, you didn't get abducted. No, and it, it felt like that sometimes. Um, they were uh, exposed to anti-bullying uh, programs right out of the gate. And they're the first generation to be exposed to technology from the time they were born and by technology i mean the phone and the social media and all that stuff so they've had that they've never been in a world without it right so the 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 um crawford book is super interesting because he precisely talks about the dangers of living in what he calls like the the does he call it the me the me world right where and he talks about this cartoon do you remember the the the, the chapter where he talks about how cartoons used to be the Disney so cartoons, cartoons, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I when I watched cartoons when I was a kid, it's a very dangerous world out there with like really objective consequences if you do something stupid like jump off a cliff or you know, or whatever. Like if bugs if uh the 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 uh, roadrunner runs out of the way and the coyote runs out, he's gonna fall and splat on the ground, you know, stuff. And cartoons now apparently I haven't seen any in ages. Um a lot of them have people controlling reality through technology. So every time like a really dangerous situation comes up, nobody gets hurt the way like, you know, people got blown up in Bugs Bunny and stuff. They just push a button and it goes away. Right. So, and of course he compares that to the fact that when you're, you know, say surfing the internet or you're on TikTok or whatever, you are in absolute control. Anything that comes against you that makes you uncomfortable or you have to deal with another center of freedom or another set of ideas, you can just oops, go to the next thing. You, you, you know, so so his whole point in that book, which I which I think again, I think they found this very powerful because they saw it in themselves, is that we have this isolated, fragile self that is terrified of confronting objective, natural realities that kind of have that give us some resistance and challenge, right? And uh, so that that part of the book 
sort of blew them away. You know, they, they were, they've just been so brainwashed to think that, oh my gosh, of course we have to have car seats and bike helmets and all, you know, they're very, very, that when he starts pushing back a little bit on that, they're just like, whoa, is he suggesting, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, I think he might be. And they're like, whoa, they almost felt like, they, it almost felt like we were doing something underground or something we, sh- like the whole class felt like we were doing something we shouldn't be doing in, in a way. I don't know if that answers your question. But, um, yeah, that's that's great stuff. Let's um let's let's move into thinking about leisure, and we can we can yeah. continue with uh, with the books, yeah. and and whatever uh, interesting things that we remember from them. Um, yeah. Leisure. Now, I my my I think like to the rest of the world, America is not known to be very good at leisure already. I mean, I think that's just kind of a famous thing. You know, I think about some of my favorite French directors, like Eric Romare is one of my favorite French film directors. He has multiple films that revolve around the dilemma of how to spend your vacation. I mean, like this is the dilemma, right, of the movie um, because it's something serious. Like, you know, you've got to do it. Um, And in America, I mean, you know, vacations and, you know, we we have these expressions in corporate America, like paid time off, you know, like as if our employer is sort of like letting us borrow some time back from them. Um, So I'm just going to throw it back to you and just say what we're bad at leisure. Right. And what can we do about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, that's great. I mean, it's funny when you start teaching a course like this, it, it kind of dawns on you at some point that leisure Thinking about leisure is thinking about everything, it, it, right? I mean, it's, so I, 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 at one point in the course, I told the students, I think this is actually a course on anthropology because the way you, what you conceive of a human being as being is going to make an enormous difference about what you think uh, of, of leisure, what the meaning of leisure would be, right? So just to borrow from people a little bit and to an- answer your question that way, um, There's there's kind of two options in the 20th century with with that seem like opposites, and that would be you know Soviet style communism and uh, Western style democrat liberal, liberal democracy. And when you kind of frame the entire you know po- realm of possibilities between those two options, right, it doesn't really get you very far in thinking about leisure. Because both of those societies in their own way are what people call societies of total work. So Soviet Union, why? Well, because everything is about eradicating poverty, creating equality, creating more just social conditions, alleviating poverty, blah, blah, blah. Everything has to be about that. Everybody has to get on board. And so one of the first things that has to be done away with is we have to get rid of the leisured class because they're a bunch of dead weight on the on the system. You know what I mean? Right. So we're, so we're going to bring everybody down to that, you know, from that class down to being proletariat. And then we're going to take the poor and we're going to bring them up to being proletariat. So you do a proletarianization if that's a, <laughs> a verb of the entire society. Yeah. But the problem with that, of course, is the proletariat is is lives by their work right and and obviously at some point you're going to have to give people a little bit of time off because otherwise they're going to fall asleep at work or whatever but you're going to give them time off simply to recoup for the sake of work so you said something at the beginning of the podcast you said we 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 have leisure in order to work. no you said we work in order to have leisure that's peeper's answer but in the soviet union you worked you you had leisure in, in for the sake of working well, the United States has a different solution to the problem of 
poverty and, and, and stuff like that. And that is to kind of just keep creating wealth, which will apparently eventually trickle down even to the poor, right? But again, that leaves no room for kind of useless types, right? Because they're, they're not creating wealth um, and that's not helping anybody. And they're not getting, they're not uh, getting on board, you know, getting, getting in the system and starting to get money of their own and all that different stuff. Um, what tends to happen, of course, as we know, is that wealth tends to get concentrated in fewer and fewer hands in in uh, liberal societies because of the you know the obsession with free uh, markets and and all those different things, right? So, what tends to happen there is the exact same thing. CEOs are workaholics, but so the poor are expected to be work workaholics so that they can you know contribute to society and all that stuff. And again, then in both situations, leisure then simply becomes downtime. It just becomes time off of work. No matter what you're doing, it's good because you're taking some time off work so that you go back and work your butt off tomorrow, if you will, right? And it's precisely almost like we really, really relish our leisure because our work is kind of so meaningless, right? Our work is so sort of like uh, beneath our human dignity in many cases where you're just kind of doing something that a machine could do. So you really need the time to veg. But then sort of, of course, what happens is both the work becomes dehumanizing and the vegging becomes dehumanizing, if I could put it that way. So that would just be some preliminary thoughts. But I, I probably have more to say about that also. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, when you're talking about work, uh, I mean, leisure and for the sake of work, um, but even education. Now, I mean, I'm teaching in my students. All they can think about is, well, how is this? how is this going to help me with this yeah. job? Yes. And, you know, I'm like, okay, guys, well, I think it's until recent times that people thought about this, you know, privilege that you have right now yeah. in your, in school, which means yeah. you have the leisure to yeah. learn these useless things. It doesn't make yeah. any sense to them. Right. Exactly. E everything has been instrumentalized, right? So, so you the reason they're in school is to get a job, right? Yeah. And and they want and they want to get through their classes with as little pain as possible, right? Because really, it's just about getting the piece of paper that says they have the degree that's gonna gonna get them the job. I mean, this has probably been a little bit of a problem for a long time, but it's very hard for them to comprehend doing anything for its own sake, right? except for at that extreme when they're just vegging in front of TikTok videos. And, and I'm not even sure they're doing that for its own sake. I think they're more doing it for the shot of dopamine that they get, the, you know, the stimulation that they get from it or, or something like that. So that's actually one thing that we had to deal with in the class to get past some misunderstandings right out of the gate is, is some of the more classical understandings of, of leisure. And two things come to mind, uh, if I may. Um, the first is the ancients used to have this phrase, and I can't think of it in Greek right now, but um, it was it was to work at leisure, right? Which which sounds really crazy, right? But it's 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 precisely because if if leisure is done right, it, it's just like what you were just saying about Eric Romer. It's important what you do on your vacation, right? It's it's important what we do in our so-called downtime, right? Because what we're going to do in our downtime is either going to enhance our humanity or it's going to do detrimental things to our humanity right so so the so we have to uh, we can't just be 
like, you know, let ourselves go, so to speak, right? Because we're going to descend into our animality, right? We're going to be eating Doritos, watching Jerry Springer, or, you know, kind of, kind of whatever, right? Um, so I had to get them to see that, that leisure is in some sense work, it's effort. There's, you're not just vegging when you're leisuring. And then on the flip side of it, well, then that, let me get to the one other thing. Um, Part of the problem, I think, is that we no longer believe that reality is fundamentally interesting, right? So, so, so I try to approach it with with the transcendentals because I'm a Baltazar guy, right? And Baltazar had this beautiful way of talking about uh, truth, goodness, and beauty. He, he says that truth is being's self saying, um, goodness is being self giving. And beauty is being self-showing, right? And if you, and I love that way of thinking about it, right? So now being is going to manifest itself to my will as the good. It's going to manifest itself to my intellect as the true. And it's, I always say, it's going to manifest itself to my capacity to love through the beautiful, right? Now, if you think about it, having intellect, having free will, and having this capacity to love selflessly, let's say, make a gift of oneself and all that, is really what defines us as human beings, right? A animals can't make a decision to give themselves, you know, et cetera. They, they do things that reason is wired into them, but they don't have to think about it and all that stuff, right? Um, if that's the case, then our leisure time is, is going to be the time where we use our will, our intellect, and our capacity to love. We direct it towards something worthy of those capacities, if you will, right? And when I, when I explained that to the students that way, they were like, oh, like, like uh, I, you know, you, you really have to kind of do something, in other words, to, you, you have to be attentive to these things that being does, the, the, the great things, the, these great manifestations of being in your life. Um, and a lot of them in their paper said that they, just as a little exercise, they started um, reducing their screen time and getting outside and taking walks and just paying attention to the, the stuff they encountered in nature. And uh, I was like, wow, <laughs> like if that's the only thing that this class caused, I I'll take it. You know, that that's that's not bad, you know. So, yeah. Um, yeah. That, yeah, that's terrific. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I know that in in your class, you also ask your students to reflect on um, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. And, you know, it just occurs to me, I'll throw it back to you to hear more about that. But, you know, the 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 problem that we were talking about before with regard to just watching television um it it is so it is so much more just to again pick up the thread that we were on before with the experience of using phones and you know having all this technology and everything um that we're you know addicted to and obsessed with it makes our leisure time actually more more anxious um and yeah. and it makes our leisure time simply kind of um you know you said before that you know, in a kind of materialistic context, we just think of it as the the place to, you know, just recharge to get back, you know, like take a drink of water and get back in the game or whatever. Yeah. Um, but in a, in a way, it's actually sort of like, you know, um, just numbing ourselves until it's time to to pay attention again to this reality, which, as you say, doesn't doesn't seem very real, doesn't seem very satisfying. So I don't know. Um, 
I think I think Aldous Huxley's Brave New World is just a, an incredibly important book. And um, what did your students think of it? Did they see themselves in these kind of soma takers, or did you know? I mean, did did they sort of understand, come to see this distinction between real leisure and just kind of, you know, numbing yourself? Yeah, I think the book was a big shock to some of them, you know, that hadn't, who hadn't read, some of them had read it. One of the students had my wife in high school and she made him read it. <laughs> so he had a second Hauser making him read a brand new world within a stretch of four years, which I think is kind of fun. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but, um, but most of them hadn't actually, which I find a little bit troubling because I think that used to be a standard uh, work assigned in high school and it's, and it doesn't seem like it is anymore. It's probably not something that uh, most uh, English teachers these days would, would, find that uh, persuasive or what, I don't know. But um, they very, very much saw themselves as living in something like a brave new world. And and many of them said things like, well, we're not there yet, but we are getting scarily, dangerously close. And they said, you know, we may not all be on SOMA, but there's a sense in which the, the, the social media is our SOMA. And several of them admitted that they will tell themselves, okay, I'm only going to be on here for a half an hour. And then two, three hours go by and they're still sucked into the world because it's, it kind of deadens their anxiety about all the things in their lives that they have to do and things like that. But as you said, it doesn't really do that. It actually ends up when you get off of it, you're six times more anxious than you were when you got on. It's a superficial little band-aid on anxiety, but it doesn't alleviate the deep anxiety that I think um, genuine leisure actually, I think is really good at, at, at just taking us out of the rush and the panic and the having to produce and all of those different things. Just like um, I've been working lately on just forcing myself after dinner to sit down and listen to at least one album on both sides and, and paying attention. Like I call it intentional listening, really paying attention. Like what's the drummer doing here? What's the bass player? You know, those kind of things. Um, and I, when I first started doing, it, I was like, man, I'm wasting an hour of my life here. I could be reading for tomorrow's class, or I could be, you know, getting that exam made up that I need to make up for tomorrow. You know, all the I'm, I'm sitting there thinking about all the work I'm not doing because I'm doing this. But over oh, after doing it for a while, I realized, like, no, no, this is what this is exactly what you should be doing right now. You know, and and the, and the work will get done. And if it doesn't, it won't. <laughs> you know, um, so that's yeah. Right. I just one more quick thing before I know, Bobby, you want to jump back in. But I, I think about how some of us have really serious jobs that we need to take seriously. And a lot is at stake if we if we do a bad job. Um, but even in those situations, I tend to tell people it's very likely that your employer needs you more than you need them. Um, and therefore, you just have to learn not to care as much like you really just have to. And and to just find that thing, whether it's like sitting there listening to an album or whatever, that that brings you life. That is your thing. Um, because I just, I think with few exceptions, like very few people in this world get to do work that is just really, that really makes them come alive. I hope more people do find a way to do that. I really do. I think our, our world would be so much better, but just the sad fact is it's just not really the case for a lot of people. So, you know, the solution to that isn't to pretend like your work is more important than it is, <laughs> right. um, you know, find, find some other way to feel alive. Bobby, uh, no, no, no. It's it's. I was thinking when you, you said like actually, um, listening to the album uh, attentively and you know all the way through, um, 
And Pieper wrote two books, I think The Silence of St. Thomas, and then also The Silence of Goethe as well. Mm -hmm. yep. And it's really interesting, you know, this kind of like, he also made in the book Leisure, he makes the distinction between intellectus and ratio. Um, this kind of, you know, one ratio being this kind of, which eventually would lead to some kind of rationalism with everything is calculated. You know, it's not denigrating, he's not denigrating that, but it's just one aspect. Uh, but then the receptive part of, of, uh, of intellectus, which is sorely neglected today. And, you know, kind of um, you, with just listening to an album like that, attending to it without doing anything, it's, it's amazing that uh, with, if you bringing that though into the workspace, um, it's, it's so hard. And this is what I like about Crawford is that leisure somehow finds a way into one's work. Um, and it's not like trying to make your work out to be something it's not because, you know, so often we're just re responding to stupid, well, important, but sometimes like emails that probably uh, should have never been written or needless, you know, just the world won't fall apart if we don't respond. Um, but, but it's, it's finding that, that intellectus part of it, kind of being silent on the job, attending to the thing that you actually are doing. And it's really, it's, it's kind of sad because so often we find ourselves in a job in which once we do that and we attend, um, we start to see the real nature of the thing that we're doing. And perhaps, it, but perhaps maybe that's the step to a better way of actually doing it. I just actually got off of a conference. It's called, it was hosted by this thing called the Presencing Institute, which was interesting. I didn't really like get everything, but they did emphasize this, these levels of attending. And I went up to the guy afterwards and I said, were you, were you kind of getting that from like Goethe or these other people? He's like, yeah, yeah. Shh, don't say that to anyone. But he's like, yeah, we're trying to bring that into that, that stuff into the workplace because so many people are just, uh, are in some ways mindless. Yeah, no, that's key, right? So the, uh, the, the other side of the paper thing on, on leisure, of course, is um, in order to have a society with the proper kind of leisure, we have to have a society with the proper kind of work, right? We, we ideally work ought to be something that uh, challenges one's humanity so that one can take a certain pride in even even it's funny I mean because I've done this before like some of the hardest work I've ever done has been the most gratifying and then some of the easiest work I've ever done has been the most least satisfying and also most stress in inducing so to give you like two different examples like I worked on a farm in my junior high years there was a teacher at my school who needed help in the summers on his farm and so some of us guys would go out there and you know, work for a few days and he would pay us, you know, 25 bucks a, 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 like for the weekend or something. It was pretty pathetic, but we were like, yeah, we're rich. Um, but at any rate, uh, one of the hardest jobs I've ever done is bailing hay, you know, so because you, you follow, you know, the, the, there's, the, there's the hay maker, you know, that shoots the bales out the back of the thing and you have to kind of take those and put them in a wagon. You have to stack them, you know, kind of every other one, you know, you have to do this like thing. And the, and we were little guy. I mean, I was a little guy. I only weighed probably hundred, hundred pounds or something. And I would have to, you know, pick up these bales of hay and put them up on the wagon. And by the time you would get it up there, you couldn't even get a breath. Another one had popped out and you had to go get that one and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. 
And by the time you got done, uh, you know, a whole field, um, you know, maybe a hundred acre field, uh, you were just wiped out. And then you had to go back and load it in the barn, which is, it would come up a conveyor belt, pop into the barn, and then you would take it up and do the exact same thing. You're like, didn't we just do this? Felt like the myth of Sisyphus. Um, but, um, but what's really interesting is then when we were done, we would always go down and jump into the pond. Like we would strip down to our skivvies and, <laughs> and jump into the pond. And it was just like, this is awesome. And then the evening we were so tired in such a good way. Like we, we couldn't be anxious about anything because you didn't have the energy to be anxious. You were just, you were just totally wiped out. And that kind of work is really hard work, but it's also, first of all, you're doing it with other people and you kind of have fun while you're doing it because you're picking on like, oh, how'd you get the bail up? You know, they were giving me a hard time if I was slow or vice versa. You're like, come on, sissy, get the bail up, you know, or whatever. Um, and all that stuff. And then some of the most stressful work I've ever done is something like setting up a grade center in a, a, a uh, an online teaching operating system where you're just like, you're trying to figure out how to get the grades spread out properly and the categories and everything you do is going wrong. And it's so tedious and so anxiety inducing, right? It's it, and, it, and you just feel like I'm just doing this so that a computer can do my something I could do easily. Like I know how to add five grades together and divide them by 20%. I mean, it's like, it's not that, you know, it's not that hard or whatever. And, uh, so I worry that so many people right now are doing these kind of meaningless jobs where technology has gotten between them and reality. So they never really get to wrestle with reality in a way that is, um, there's something good for the soul about wrestling with reality. Um, I think Crawford says in his book, the opposite of a bureaucrat is a car repairman. Right. It's kind of, you know, the, the core repairment like has a concrete problem, like the, you know, the, 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 the water filter is bad or so, you know, and he's got to find a way to get in there, get the water filter out, get a new one in and get everything put back together so that the car sort of runs. And he, he's just wrestling with this, this out, this actual thing. And there's, and when you get done, there's something so gratifying, even if it's frustrating in the process. And believe me, I've heard mechanics, you know, using colorful language when they're fixing cars but there's something so gratifying about you can you can say i just did something super tangible and uh so of course part of proper's theme is we need to get back many many people need to be doing manual labor mm -hmm. you know that we just not everybody can be sitting in a cubicle doing data entry that just, that, that can't be good for the world yeah, I know. My grandfather came from a family of painters. His his uh, his father was like a union leader in in yeah. the paint the painting industry in Buffalo, New York. And um, he he always used to say, you know, he came from this like working class painter family. And he always used to say, all the all my dad's friends were philosophers. All of them yeah. like were incredible thinkers yeah. Yeah. because like they're just focused all day on these like on these tasks that bring them a kind of gratification, but they're also not distracted. I mean, they're like, they're just kind of focused all day long. And so they think really well. I think this yeah. every time I have this great plumber, everybody, of course, every homeowner needs like a great plumber and, and you know, <laughs> go down the whole list, but I have the best plumber. I love this guy so much. And I, I honestly, I, I, this is maybe too revealing, but I honestly feel a kind of envy of him every time yeah. he comes into my home. I mean, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. He's focused. Um, yeah. he's not just like piddling around on a computer. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, I think something that Crawford notes in various places is there's there's actually going to be like 
there's a lot of demand for people like, cause we don't have that many people around in the world anymore who can do that. So there's going to be Park you know, had an episode on this and <laughs> sorry to cut you off, but South South Park just had an episode on this. Really? Which, oh yeah. Every guy who has like an advanced degree is out of work. And right. the guys, the plumbers and the car repairmen are the yeah. Jeff Bezos. They're the billionaires and yeah. they're yeah. also getting like the best looking women and everything yeah. is, is about <laughs> them. And so they just, they feel like it's so unjust and they're so envious, but. <laughs> no, that's yeah. it. Yeah. The plumber, my plumber has the biggest house in my neighborhood. I mean, one of the biggest houses in my neighborhood, which is, I, I love the, I love that, you know? And mm -hmm. I told him once that he was here working and he had his son with him who was learning the business. And he was like, um, he goes, he goes, you're a professor. Where should my son go to college when, when he graduates high school? And I said, why would he want to go to college? I said, if, if he could do this, why would he do that? And he goes, really? You don't think I should? I said, it's up to him, but I would, I would recommend he become a plumber. <laughs> and he does, he's a, he's, he now shows up to my house to do the, to the work that the, the, the stuff that is, you know, not too advanced, like then he needs his dad, but, uh, <laughs> but I love the fact that he's doing it and he seems to get a great deal of um, gratification, you know, from doing it. My uncles, by the way, were bricklayers. And, uh, and again, you, some of the smartest guys I've ever been around were my uncles. And, and it, it just to kind of make the point about work and leisure again, they, they took an enormous amount of pride in their work. My grandfather was a bricklayer and he taught them how to do it really well. And they would drive me around my hometown when I was little and say, hey, your your granddad made that, did that brickwork in that, in the school over there. And I was like, really? And they're like, yep. And he said, he did that too. And he, the, the jail, you know, all these different places in town that he had, he had laid the, and he would, do, he was the guy that laid the corner, which was the, you know, the premier bricklayer would always do the corner because then everything else would line up and, and all that stuff. But then what's interesting about these guys is they work hard. That's hard work. Um, when they were off, they all taught themselves how to play bluegrass. So they just, they, they divvied up the, the responsibilities. And one of them decided he was going to learn how to play guitar, one banjo. My aunt Ada learned how to play upright bass. And um, my uncle Lee learned how to play fiddle, right? So they kind of said, hey, we need these instruments. Who wants to do what, you know? And not a single one of them took a lesson. They, you know, they had, they got these little books and stuff like that. And they just sat down and figured it out. And my uncle Joe said he used to slow down Earl Scruggs Bluegrass 45s to 78 speed, or was it to 33? Yeah, to 33, so that they were slowed down so he could figure out what uh, 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 strings he was plucking with what chord uh, arrangements. And he just, he figured, he eventually figured it out and he was a world-class banjo player. So here's a guy who lays bricks in the daytime and then goes home at night. He goes, I couldn't wait to get home, get a shower and sit down with my banjo. He told me that. And I just like, now that's leisure, right? There's mm -hmm. that's work and that's leisure. <laughs> None of them ever watched television, even though it came, <laughs> they just weren't big tea. They were out hunting and they're all fishing, you know, all that stuff. So that mm -hmm. I learned a lot. You're just by watching them, you know? Yeah. I, I wonder, um, so I think, we, you know, we, we've been talking about this, this issue from kind of the anthropological perspective, like, you know, what does this mean to us, like, to be creatures of work and leisure and that sort of thing? I wonder if we could, like, shift a little bit towards the theological, um, because I, you know, I remember, for example, I'm a former Protestant, I remember, you know, there's a, um, there's a, a, a text by Martin Luther, um, where he talks about, the, the conclusion is basically like, if you can be 
um, if there's a use for you to be an executioner, then, well, you should be an executioner because it doesn't matter. Like be whatever. It doesn't matter. Like you can do anything. And, you know, because ultimately like what you do doesn't really matter. Like all that matters is like the disposition of your heart and only God knows that or whatever. And so then, you know, not, I'm not just blaming Luther for that one particular thing, but you know, there does develop this idea that then, you know, life is hard and then you die, but then you get to go to your rest. And that's that, you know, now somewhere along the line, I encountered some, some proper, resurrection theology, which blew my mind because I, I suddenly realized like, wait a minute, like, yeah, we're going to be like, re you know, we will, we will not be like toiling, but we're going to be active, you know, yeah. like our, our destiny is, is actually more than just kind of, you know, falling asleep and having good dreams forever. Uh, am I right here, Rodney? I mean, is this a good way to start thinking about work and leisure? Yes. I mean, there's all sorts of all sorts of avenues that we could go down from there, right? But the, but the, the irony, it seems to me, of Protestantism is that, and I, I I grew up Protestant also, so you know, and I and I did a chapter on Luther in my dissertation actually. But um, the irony is the sort of pure passivity at the level of soteriology, right? So so the, you know the alien righteousness that just gets kind of declared it's yours, and you're just uh, you're totally passive in the process, and God is active. Um, leads ironically to what Weber calls the Protestant work ethic. And, and, and the reason for that irony is that uh, it's, it has happened more in Calvinist countries, but, um, you know, they were anxious about whether they were one of the elect and they would go to their pastors and say, well, how do I know if I'm one of the elect? And they would say, well, if you're one of the elect, you'll probably be very, there'll be a lot of fruit in your life. You'd be frugal and hardworking and disciplined. And if you're all those things, then there's a good chance. You're one of, so then like, they get the, part ahead of the horse or something and they start working their butts off to prove that they're elect and they take a very dim view to any activity that isn't explicitly about um you know uh work and i grew up with that protestant work ethic my wife really grew up with that protestant work ethic because her family was plymouth brother and they got i would i grew up charismatic and that kind of softened some of the I think more problematic elements of certain kinds of reformed theology, but her family was just straight up, you know, and what kind of tends to happen is everything kind of has to be for a, a very explicit purpose, including even our relationship with God. It's not so much about contemplation, prayer, and worship. It's about saving souls, right? So you're, 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 you have to be frantically, constantly all the time worrying about, am I witnessing to enough people, getting enough people saved? Because that's practical work that I can be doing for the kingdom of God, getting people out of, you know, their way to hell and getting them on their way to heaven. And the very notion of like, I, I once talked to my mother-in-law about this and she admitted, I, I was like, how do you pray a lot? You know, do you have a, do you have, do you have, do you have a, like a profession? She was a very, you know, serious Protestant, you know, and she's to be honest with you, I just, I, you know, I, I do, you know, I say my prayers in the morning and at night, she goes, but I don't really get the point. Like, I, I don't get carried away with it. Cause like, it just seems to me like it's a little bit of a waste of time. <laughs> and I was like, stop, exactly. Like at least she was honest. Right. Cause I just think that was implicit in our theology is something like doing liturgy. Right would be like, what would be the point? So even our worship in the church I grew up in was intended to elicit a certain emotion so that it would have some kind of practical effect in our lives or maybe save souls. You know, the the, the service was kind of intended to convert the people in the uh, in the pews that weren't converted and, and stuff like that. It was all very utilitarian, 
And so just to now to, you know, give a really long answer to a really brief question. Peeper says it in the one chapter, I think it's four of, of, his, of his work. It, it, a society that is not liturgical cannot be a society that has proper leisure. Liturgy is the first and most useless activity. And the fact that even in primitive religions, you know, people were taking things from uh, the profane order and designating them as, as sacred was a huge sacrifice to make, right? Because they really were living hand to mouth a lot, but they would take certain part of the crop and it wasn't to be consumed. And certain buildings in the town weren't to be used for anything but worship. And certain parts of the house weren't to be used for anything but, you know, signifying the the, the uh, sacred and all that stuff. That really is the first move, I think, to awakening humanity's uh, sense of, of leisure, just setting things apart for their own sake and for the sake of what transcends the workaday world, if you want to put it that way. And that uh, that then, I think, sets the tone for the workaday world, but it's it, that's got to be done. Randy, since since it's the, the our theme is like the theme of hope, um, you know, the theological virtue, yeah, yeah. Can, you, can you connect that to, you know, you, you connected liturgy and leisure, but in the society and culture absent of those two things, does, is, is that kind of the conditions for a, a, a despair? But what's the connection between hope, leisure, and and liturgy? Right. Okay. So, uh, you know, here, here's a, I mean, this is a huge problem in the West, is we've totally immunitized eschatology, right? You know, so, so it's, it's, uh, we've reduced salvation to eradicating racism and injustice and poverty and all, and all those things, right? Um, and this was really something that was explicitly felt, I think, by certain Belgian theologians after the council. They were they were like the the Marxist revolutionaries on campus in the in the late sixties. Were these guys were serious about making up making change? You know, Rotzinger was I think at Tubingen at the time, and he said he couldn't even teach theology courses because the students were like, "What's this have to do with making the you know the world a better place?" Right. So, what's going to happen to hope in that situation is it's going to be brought down from its traditional place, which is uh, he who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. It says in in, in first John, I believe, right? You know, so uh, um, he's talking about what we will be. And he goes, we will be like him for we shall see him face to face. And he says, he who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure, right? So your whole life is in a sense kind of lived in the shadow, so to speak, of this hope to have a face-to-face -face friendship with God. That's really what it's all about, right? And that doesn't mean you become just kind of sit in a room and say, mm, you know, and don't do anything. Obviously not, right? We, we, there's, there's, there's obviously going to be an active side to that. And there's, there's definitely should be concerned for social justice and all those things. I'm not downplaying any of that. But when eschatology becomes purely real, I mean, real, you know, realized eschatology, immunitized, um, strangely, all of our hopes then have to be directed at tangible, measurable improvements, which is what creates this um, total work society in the Soviet Union, right? It's it, anybody who's like, you know, fiddling while Rome is burning, so to speak, is, is considered a, a not a helpful member of society. But I worry that that attitude has even gotten into the church, right? So that, so that uh, unless m m all of my activities have some sort of measurable outcome that can be measured in this worldly terms, then 
why do this? And we see it with the liturgy after the Second Vatican Council that becomes radically horizontalized, right? It, it becomes about us and the family of God and creating, you know, peace between people and all those things, which again, all great, but a, a kind of total, what's the point of all this, you know, the vertical dimension? And I don't know if that answers, I, I mean, but I would say that it, hope is absolutely crucial to proper understanding of liturgy or leisure, because it seems to me that leisure done right is 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 precisely moments of explicitly in touch with the transcendent, right? So that they're they're almost like mini liturgical moments. My little hour with my record and my bourbon on the rock, that's a that's a liturgical moment for me in the broad sense of the word, not in the explicit sense, of course. But but it's a time where I'm doing, I'm I'm engaging, I'm I'm attentive to something beautiful for its own sake not because it's going to make me rich or do anything for me. And really in a sense, I can't even possess it. You know what I mean? The song is out there. It's, 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 I can't own, you know, kind of blue by Miles Davis or something. You know, I mean, I own the record. I can't own the music, the music. And even when I'm listening to it, I'm not consuming it. It's still out there. You know what I mean? But so I have to be kind of glad to just behold it, which I think is already on the way to something like worship, if you will. Right. Yeah, so, and yeah. and you know worship itself then too. I mean, if uh, you know Catholics might go to mass and maybe maybe they really do believe that the that the sacrament of the altar is Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. They they'll they'll answer yes when the survey comes around that says, "Do you believe in transubstantiation?" But if you probe a little deeper, they might uh, they might sort of articulate that as you know this is something that I need in order to you know go about my normal life. Now, in some respects, that's not an entirely incorrect answer, but the liturgy itself is in a sense like, it, it's the thing itself, right? I mean, it is the the unveiling, it is the it is the the encounter, it is the foretaste of eternity. I mean, that's where like, that's where maybe we wanna talk about a little bit of like hope being, you know, or eschatology being sort of immunitized for a time. Um, yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and the other thing is, you know, and the much maligned expression, active participation, right, from Vatican II. I mean, that, but that's right. I mean, we, you go to, you go to mass and you, you're offering your sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, right? You're, you have your role to play just as you will actively in eternity, right? So it just seems like, you know, you know, this is just a way roundabout way for me to come back to the point that you made before about just how, how difficult it is to have a right understanding of, work and leisure without being a kind of real liturgical people. And I guess what I'm getting at beyond that is that even our sense of being liturgical people is kind of corrupted by, it's like this vicious cycle. They're both kind of feeding negatively on each other now. Yes, no, absolutely. Right. So I, I think it's Peggy that says, until we have been pagan, we will never be Christian. And I think what he's getting at there is the kind of natural religiosity of the primitive person that just kind of sensed that there was something that was, yeah, the, the sacred was more important than the profane, uh, to, to put it one way or whatever. And there's a kind of, um, every time we kind of tap into uh, that which kind of transcends the ordinary, so to speak, we're anticipating in hope uh, our, our, our resurrected state. Um, I've been thinking a lot about about this lately. I mean, just even in teaching the intro class this past semester, um, trying to get the students to see that, like, what purgatory is about is making sure that you're the kind of person who, when you get to heaven, can actually, you have the capacity to enjoy it, 
right? Because what happens is because we're sinners, we we enjoy the wrong things, and then we can't. That kind of prevents us from enjoying the right things. You know, to the to the holy person, what is bad tastes bad, and what is good tastes good. You know, that's that's kind of I think that's something a kind of a paraphrase from Thomas or something. But um, so heaven is 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 going to be the fullness of of all the perfections that we glimpse in, in a in a broken way in this world so that if we can't tap into those those things in this world right we're certainly not going to be we're not going to be um uh, able to in the next i mean we're going to we're going to need some serious cleaning up some boot camp you know to, to get us ready but it's precisely the active part that i think is important there Purgatory, I don't think, would be necessary if we're totally passive in heaven, right? If we're just sitting there taking, you know, God's doing all the, the shows going on, and the angels are doing their thing, and maybe some saints or something, but we're just sitting there like, wow, you know. Um, we've got to be able to enter into that thing actively and, and to and to own it and to and to take delight in it, right? And that's what I think leisure is learning to take delight in the right things. That's what leisure is for. And maybe just to kind of, I know we're, we're getting close to the end of the, uh, our time, but, you know, uh, going back to Pieper, his book, Leisure, but then he writes a lot about festivity as well and yeah. delighting in things. And I was thinking of the movie. We like to talk about movies an awful lot, especially <laughs> European films. Um, but I'm thinking of Babette's Feast. And, you know, the what the bet does to that community in, in terms of spending all the money on this great uh, feast that they, they really don't see, like, what's the point at first. But yet, I mean, it's that kind of almost, it's she, in a way, like Christ kind of offered, she sacrifices herself to offer this great gift to them. And that alone transforms the community. Um, Andrew and I, we used to talk a lot about Babette's Feast. And Andrew, every uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, he's constantly inviting Magdalene and I over. And it was always his wife, Amber, was a wonderful cook. And uh, she would always prepare. She always, she even had the red hair. The, she has the red hair. Um, uh, and it was like a Babette's Feast every time. And so I would always like love, you know, whenever we got something like, like something that, and that was so good. I always just say it must be lemonade, you know, because um, I'm so I'm so um, you know um, let's say base and and unsophisticated in my taste. But Andrew and his family would always elevate us. So I, I, I kind of I, I know um, you know I know Dr. Howard Rodney that you you too in, in the community of the cells would actually um, kind of have something similar to that, uh, uh, trying to get the students to appreciate something like a feast. And now that Christmas is coming up, and I'll post this right before Christmas. So I hope I hope all of you guys go and watch Babette's Feast before you actually feast on Christmas Day. So... Yeah. Well, it's so interesting. You hit it. I, I showed one movie in the class this semester, and it was Babette's Feast. <laughs> Right. Because what she, I, I see she's doing is she's teaching them how to do leisure because they're they're these pinched up Protestants who feel like they just have to be doing, doing, doing all the time. Or they're from this kind of radical Lutheran sect, it seems to me, or something like that. And uh, and she's a Catholic. Right. So she's uh, she knows how to you know waste time no, she, she and money. <laughs> but it's so funny. My students at first didn't get it. They thought that they sort of thought that she was being wasteful. 
they, 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 so I guess, so what's your impression? What do you think? I didn't say a word about, I didn't set it up. I had nothing. And first of all, they have to sit there and watch that extremely methodical, let's call it movie, right? There's not a, not very many. I, I, I told them after we watched it for the first day, I, I paused it and I said, okay, we'll finish it next class. I said, all the violence and sex is in the second half. So you're not going <laughs> to <finish it." laughs> So uh, they came back expecting it. No, no. Um, but, um, but I said, just the fact that I asked you to watch this movie that is so different from your typical blockbuster American film is my way of trying to get you guys to learn how to sit back and pay attention to something that's not overstimulating. You know, you really have to kind of figure out he's not giving you much and he's not telling you how to feel about things in that way, which is why they could misunderstand it. Like they, they came in and they're like, well, we kind of think that those people were really, you know, really spiritual people. And she kind of like, you know, got them drunk and, <laughs> you know, and, and fed them this really decadent meal. And she spent all that. She wasted all that money and that poor turtle. The um, poor turtle. That's <laughs> what I was going to say. I thought your students might have a problem with that. They did. They did. <laughs> they're like, not the turtle. Um, you know, so, but they're, that's just it. I mean, even the Catholic kids in our, in our, in our culture right now have been so formed by that Protestant ethic that it feels more natural to them than the, than, than the Catholic ethic, which I think is the one that's being endorsed uh, by, by the film. So I'm glad yeah. you brought that up. Yeah, that's. We, we try never to waste an opportunity to talk about Babette's Feast. Uh, if, if, uh, if our listeners get anything out of this podcast, hopefully they'll they'll uh, remember to go and watch that. Rodney mm-hmm. Hauser, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, yep. We hope very much that our listeners have found this uh, a great waste of an hour, um, you know, uh, a great way, a great way for them to have spent their leisure time. So again, Rodney, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Well, that's been another episode of the Space Alby Institute podcast. If you like what you heard, please do give us a five-star review, share this episode with friends, subscribe, and check out our website too, spacealbyinstitute.com to sign up for our emails. Until next time, God bless and live in hope.